Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the snowy, frigid slopes of Park City, Utah, where this year's Sundance Film Festival is currently unfolding. Throughout the festival, I will be rallying the best critics in town to debate and discuss each day's new premieres. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter for roundtable discussions, interviews, dispatches, and more. Welcome to another day of the Film Comment podcast at the Sundance Film Festival. I think this is the seventh episode, perhaps. Uh, This is also going to be the final roundtable from Sundance. There will be another podcast coming with an interview next week, but this is the end of my marathon of daily podcasting with the smartest critics I can bully into joining me to talk about the day's movies. And I have an amazing roundtable of the most brilliant ladies with me here today to wrap up the festival. Um, I will ask Jessica, the veteran film comment podcaster, to introduce herself first. Yes, my name is Jessica Kiang. I am here covering for Variety, but I'm basically moonlighting as a full-time film comment podcast guest. Exactly. (laughs) And then we have Desan, who is making a return to the film comment podcast after quite a few years. Yeah, so I'm Desan Lopez-Cassell, and I'm editor-in-chief of Scene Journal, which is a new journal of film, art, and visual culture focused on writing by and about people of color. And we have a film comment debutante, Paulomi. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Paulomi Das. I'm a freelance critic from India, and I'm covering Sundance for The Playlist, Mint Lounge, and First Post. Cool. So... First of all, I thought we would start talking about a film that has been really buzzy, that when the lineup was announced, I feel like everyone was kind of going crazy over this film because it features a very attractive actor du jour, Franz Rogowski. And I'm talking about the film Passages by Ira Sachs. It was also just bought by Mubi today. I saw it yesterday. Jessica and Paulomi saw it today. And I have to say... That was the horniest screening I've been to at Sundance. It was hot. It was so hot. That was cold, cold cold all over. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, Jessica, you want to start off? Sure. I mean, I I loved it. I really thought it was a wow of a film. I'm I'm a little bit up and down on Ira Sachs. Um, I I certainly think for a lot of us, his last film, Frankie, was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, uh, But this one really reminded me of... It felt to me like almost the greatest hits of what he does so well. Mm. And then it's very human and it's very, um, he, he has always shot sex scenes so brilliantly well. There's a gay sex scene in this, which I think is one of the best gay sex scenes I have ever seen in a, in a, in a relatively mainstream film. Um, and um, uh, yeah, and, the, so, and we have this trio of performances, of course. So we have not just Franz Rogowski, but Franz Rogowski plays a, a film director called Thomas, yeah. who is... Basically, you know, you're you're sort of your standard issue toxic filmmaker. Toxic um, European toxic filmmaker. Toxic Euro, yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, very fond of wearing mesh tops and uh, leopard, like crotch or practically um, belly skimming uh, um, leopard skin trousers. Um, uh, so, so quite flamboyant in certain ways. He's married to Ben Whishaw, um, Paddington himself um and uh uh but um through the course of the film at the very beginning of the film he's just finished a film which 
I don't know if you noticed in the in the little bit where you see the clapperboard of the film, the film itself it, within the film is called Passages. Passages yeah. So this does invite us to equate Ira Sachs w- to a certain oh, degree with mm. the Franz Rogowski character, um, which then becomes an interesting way into sort of like this is incredibly self-critiquing <laughs> then because he is not a good guy. He um, is a complete... bumbling idiot like and a huge narcissist a huge dick um but yet somehow it is completely uh completely understandable to me why why those people around him would sort of fall into his orbit and why they would put up with so much of his bullshit even though we don't necessarily see any of the compensations that they get we just see his his sort of increasingly narcissistic increasingly spiraling um uh, very selfish behavior around them and yet there is still something very just inherently magnetic about him mm. I, I i think also we should say like the the for me what the the great perform the great um, nugget of these performances, the great thing that really stood out to and me. And we should mention the third performer yes, we haven't course, yelled. Yes, of course, Adele Exarchopoulos. Yeah. Um, and um, so the, the, the amazing chemistry that these three actors uh, managed to summon, um, it really made me start to think about the the, the the process of acting, the process of performance, especially when you're having to perform different levels of intimacy, but also different levels of attraction. Yeah. I mean, to, be, to be able to perform chemistry is a really difficult thing. Yeah. Um, and all three of these performers have to do it in certain, in, in very different ways and in very different like stages of those relationships. And it's just a sort of a, an entire panoply that you get. You get with each of them at some point, you get like the instant erotic attraction that exists between whoever yeah. it is. And then you also get the frustrations you get the uh, and you get the sort of heartbreak and you get the loss so you get all of these colors in all of these relationships and then what I think is so special about it because during the course of the film obviously what happens is that Franz Rogowski um, basically ha- has a fling first of all and then falls in love with the Adela Exarchopoulos character um, and leaves his husband Ben Wishaw mm. um, I should a call him a perfect husband yes a perfect mm. lovely lovely husband um, <clears throat> And then sort of, you know, goes back on that, finds he regrets it. There's a various other plot developments <laughs> which probably shouldn't spoil. Um, but uh, yes, so by the end of it, um, what I think is so interesting is we've really seen the Adele, Adele character in in and the Ben Wishaw character in relation to the Franz Rogowski character throughout. And then there's this scene, finally, between the Adele character and the Ben Wishaw character, which was the scene that absolutely ripped me apart. Mm. Um, wh- where you suddenly realize it's these two people sitting across a table for the first time, realizing like in each other's eyes, the collateral, that they are the collateral damage of this, of this incredibly yeah. damaged man. Um, and I just found it really powerful, really moving and just incredibly well made. Yeah. I, you know, the one thing I kind of want to note about the film is a lot of films that are about um, people straying from their relationships, but also reckoning with their own sexuality you rarely see films that are about someone in a homosexual relationship like trying to coming to terms with like possible bisexuality you you know there's lots of films about people in heterosexual relationships suddenly realizing that they you know are attracted to the same Mm. sex or gender Um, and I thought that that was very interesting that the film does that you know it's almost like a twist in the opening that uh, Franz Rogowski also presents himself in a very queer manner ends up sleeping with the Adele uh, Exarchopoulos character and even like falling in love with her or he thinks he is and that this is not I mean, he's extremely silly and, you know, and you slowly realize what a man child he is and how little he understands himself. But it's not his attraction is not frivolous. You know, there is he is 
really, I mean, it, it's not a joke. This is not a joke that he's like suddenly experiencing this reckoning. He's actually struggling with, you know, the different kind of a new kind of pleasure he's experiencing. And that's clearly something he was desperately seeking. And um, I mean, I think he even says that, doesn't he? In that exchange that he has with the yeah, Adele character. Yes, yeah. exactly. And she says, oh, I bet you say that all the time. And he says, I say it when I mean it. And the whole point is that he does always mean it when he says it. Yeah. But yeah. it's just not a Well, actually, thing. that's a response to him saying, I think I'm falling yeah, in love, love with you. you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was really good. And I always, I mean, I just have a weakness for films about messy, yeah. you know, relationships. Yes. Yeah. but And also, which are not, I mean, this... Eventually, you realize, like again, I keep saying, "What an idiot!" This character, like, I've, it, it's bear, it bears repeating. But you know, it, and there are lots of he's so much in denial of his like how how needy and how self-absorbed he is to him. Like he has like through the film, it's just main character energy. Yeah, where he thinks yeah. he is the center of everyone's universe, not just like his own. He is really main character energy embodiment, <laughs> truly. Um, but you know, I think that. There is a kind of like still seriousness is what I'm getting at. Even when he's like cheating on his partner, it's not immediately what the reactions are not immediately what you think they'd be. I mean, mm. these are amidst everything. These are still adults who understand that yeah. emotions are complicated and relationships are complicated, you know, and who try in their own ways to figure something out until they realize that. You know, you can try all kinds of solutions, but the people at the heart of it have to be mature enough yeah. to be, you know, yeah. generous. I will voice one complaint with the film, and because I think Paul and me, you liked it, so I want to like get in a note of dissent, which is, I can't put my finger on it, but there was something about it that felt a little bit like a copy of a French film. I mean, there was something where the actors is that films, because they were in Paris. No, <laughs> I mean, like the actors are so authentic, but there was something about the filmmaking which made me feel like, yes, this is an American director trying to make his The Innocence, which he literally said in the Q&A, this is my version of The Innocence, mm -hmm. you know. But there was like a feeling I got of a director like, really imitating his favorites in the like messy European romantic polyamorous drama genre. Mm -hmm. There's like some break from organicness in the making that I haven't fully articulated yet. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I, I was even just noting down there that I wanted to talk a little bit about the craft and the f actual filmmaking. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I responded to really strongly in it. Mm. I, I really like that. And I, and I suppose you can see it as a homage or a, or even a pastiche mm. in a way. But I, to me, it worked really well and it was really refreshing. Um, specifically, I want to call out two elements of it, which are the editing, which I, I think it's one of the most interestingly edited films mm. I've seen here. There's there's a particular scene quite early on where um, Franz Rogowski and Ben Wishaw are in bed. Rogowski is reading a book. Um, uh, Wishaw gets into the bed with him um, and sort of like sort of snuggles up to him. Rogowski is not responding, so he uh, he uh, the, the, he just uh, Ben Wishaw turns off the light and says says goodnight, turns off the light, and Rogowski continues reading. Yeah. And then there's this jump cut. Yeah. Suddenly. Yeah. Um, to like later at night, so it's already it's very dark outside mm -hmm. and both lights are off, and Rogowski sitting with his back to the camera and they're in the middle of an argument about yeah. like can you really say that you, you love but me but you didn't feel that was like a classic French auteur style of editing but that's like but but Philippe Guerrero yeah. that's sure, me and sure love. maybe but I, but I think it worked really well in this context because I think 
what what that sort of very uh, foregrounding of itself editing kind of forces you to do is it forces you to consider what happened in the yeah. in the elision yeah. of that cut it like you, and you suddenly realize how efficient this this manner of telling a story is because actually we didn't need to know all of the things that happened in the middle in yeah. order for them yeah. to get from there to there mm. um all we needed was that cut and so uh, simultaneously you're feeling the presence of the camera and the and the, the editor and the director and you're feeling the construction of this story but you're also being invited to construct a story yourself yeah. um, which I think is actually a, a really interesting way of of putting forward what could otherwise have been a very classic and simple and sort of straightforward relationship yeah, drama yeah. or straightforwardly made or even like drama. a kind of a portrayal of tension between these two characters right each and every of the argument that we see both of them having uh, having they always like they don't start from the beginning they always have like a middle point like there's this scene where um he comes and tells him that hey i've slept with this girl where uh, ben vishal says that you know this always happens to you after a film yeah. which made me immediately think that okay this might have happened before or there's like some kind of backstory that you're constructing in your head but the film is withholding it but also telling you and yeah. which i kind of liked about how it constructed their relationship because there's so much you know that is baggage but they're still sticking to each other and the codependency kind of like becomes bigger and bigger which i found also very interesting and in how mm. they edited and structured the film mm. very much so and i i think the for the other thing that really helped me along with that and and i think that you'll if you dislike its french new wave pretensions <laughs> then you'll probably dislike this too but i thought it was great because i just haven't seen the use of uh, score and music mm. this um uh, skipping in like uh, these very uh, eclectic and erudite cuts of music that are used in such a way that they sort of weave in and out of the diegesis of the yeah. film so sometimes they're actually being played within the scene then sometimes it's just the theme and then and then there's a very strange sort of a saxophonist um a jazz jazz saxophone that comes in and then there's that massive swelling music that happens over the very last scene and i think the last time i was on the pow i was talking about how the first scene of past lives is my favorite first scene yeah. the last scene of this it's film still, is yeah. my favorite yeah. last cycling scene cycling will never be wonderful. the same again yeah no it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful but, but i even that cycling scene i feel like i've just seen it all before in some or other french movie i've seen scenes of like people cycling and then there's like a freeze frame you know i've seen that i've seen these kinds of in media res cuts into plot points into scenes into songs into music so there's just there was something familiar which i think could either feel depending on the viewer it could feel like an homage and for yeah. me it just felt a little bit trite and i just was wishing that there was a grammar that felt more true to the fact that this is Ira Sachs making his European film with three like these three a German a French and a British actor and I I I don't know so that just bothered me this like slight what I felt like a cookie cutter vibe which is weird to say in Sundance because the Sundance cookie cutter vibe is very different from what this film mm. does but I'm thinking like you know like I said I'm thinking of like a A, a French film or like a Euro pretension, sort of these gestures of Euro pretension. We can leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I can I just see uh, uh, Jessica firing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. I just, I mean, I, I just, well, I guess I don't agree. I didn't have that response yeah, to it. Same. In fact, those, those, those elements that you're referring to were very much enriching of the experience of that to me. Yeah. And I felt like they were sure that they're they're referential and they're maybe homaging a certain sort of thing. But I think he's really putting those 
things in service of quite a yeah. modern story and of a yeah. new story. And it's, and I mean, I don't want to keep on harking on about the sex scenes, but even the, those feel very different from from the from the films that you're mm. referencing. Those feel very. Um, just, just excitingly raw, but yet beautiful, and um, they're they're uh, like the sort of the, the gay sex scene between Franz Rogowski yeah. and, and Ben Whishaw is goes on quite a long time, yeah. and yet you do feel that it's extending the plot, and you do feel that it's deepening our understanding of their relationship. But all you're actually seeing yeah. is the back of, of yeah. it's Franz Rogowski's back. And at my, at and our screening, yeah. 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 yeah, he's Ben Whishaw said like, I, I sorry, I'm still recovering from seeing my bum <laughs> exposed so large yes. on screen, which was. Yeah really cute um i will just say i think the film like really reminded me of let the sunshine in a little bit it reminded me of the salt of tears the philip garel film from a few years ago all about like really selfish lovers being actually even both sides of the blade uh, slightly like really selfish lovers who are like confused between you know different paramours and then you slowly just realize that they are you know a mess and they have no understanding of themselves and maybe that's also why like I think all three of those films have more a slightly more audacious edge to me than this one. I certainly dislike all other th the other I, three I know much you more than I do because we have <laughs> yeah. talked about both sides of the plane. <laughs> yes. um, you know, but anyway, we don't need to. Uh, but I uh, will yeah, say okay. one thing though: um, the fits of the film are uh, really great in the sense that not just like the crop top and like the um, mesh the mesh tops that you're talking about but also the sweaters it's like it just adds in like so much vulnerability to his character in the sense that you know this guy is needy but you still feel sympathy for him just because of how he's dressed or how he carries himself which I thought was really like alluring mm. and I mean just just the, the the embodied nature of all three of these actors yeah. all three of these actors are very physically expressive actors and I think that's another thing that really struck me during the sex scenes is how often we are we're used to a vernacular of sex scenes uh, oftentimes it's because people need to get you know not focus on the genitalia so they we're used to a vernacular of sex scenes where it's all on the face and yeah. you're seeing the orgasmic you know expressions, expressions on people's yeah. faces yeah. and that's all you're seeing here there's almost no faces you can almost never see anybody's but you faces. do hear a lot you hear a lot but yeah. you can you and can't, the movement see it and you but the movements yeah. so it's bodies there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot about bodies and i think that the clothes the clothing and yeah. the costuming really speaks to that as well and i think i mean we should also point out adele in this as well i think adele is exoshopolis is such a is always such a she has such an earthiness to her yeah um, she's a beautiful voice for one thing but she has a really sort of earthy sensuality to her yeah um while at the same time a sort of a, a an emotional um immediacy yeah. uh which makes her just like the fantastic person for this and 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 her body as well i mean so that she is like she's not even her face and everything she's not necessarily conventionally the most like chiseled high yeah. cheekbone person she's got like sort of you know slightly funny crooked smile but she's so unbelievably gorgeous and yeah. so real you will feel each one of these people are so real and so real in their bodies in this film yeah, yeah. even in the first sequence where uh, both these characters meet where they're dancing she has like such a movie star quality to her because it's like the scene it's not like she's the focus of the scene but she's the focus of your attention just based on how she's moving and how she's just like positioning herself in front of him and I really like that scene as well and so then much. she becomes the uh, the third wheel which is interesting <laughs> yes. you know I mean she yeah but also then we discover also that she's a primary school teacher yeah. right yeah. and so there's like this this very ordinary life that she actually has but then she's also this, this sort of glamorous thing yeah. she or she can be and it's I mean that reflects on all of us how we yeah. can yeah. at certain points be very glamorous and at certain points be sitting around a table in a hotel doing a podcast <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of glamour and dancing and movies 
movement. There is a film starring Tiana Taylor that uh, Dasan and Jessica have seen and that I really want to hear about because I'm a fan of Tiana Taylor's Dasan. Do you want to uh, tell us a little about A Thousand and One? Sure. I mean, I'll start by saying it's a very unglamorous film <laughs> that it's really focused on a black woman who is coming to terms with her life living on the streets and a child that she has sort of made her own and really trying to carve out a life for herself and her family. And this is set against the backdrop of New York during the mayorship of Rudy Giuliani, mm. which obviously is characterized by this broken windows policing and the extreme effects that that has on black communities in particular living in New York. And so all of that is sort of playing out as the backdrop of her trying to make a living and trying to provide for her child and also really sort of work through her relationship with another person in her life who eventually becomes her husband. It's far more complicated than that, and we'll get into it further, but that's really sort of the main thrust of the film. Mm -hmm. and, and what did you think of it? Um, I think I was pleasantly surprised by it. I think I'm often skeptical of certain versions of let's watch black people struggle stories. Um, and I think that many film festivals, um, this one included, tend to platform a lot of those. But I think that what I was delighted by in this film is that it brings this layer of depth and nuance um, to a character, especially because there's a quite a big twist mm -hmm. at the end hmm. um, that really hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, but I really... What I appreciated the most, I think, was sitting with the complexity of this character who really wants to do the best, but is also very much doing the most with the very least. Mm. And so she is rightfully angry. She is deeply depressed. She is prone to lashing out at the people that she loves the most. And she also is just sort of stuck and really doing what she can to eke out a living under policies of a city that, frankly, are extremely hostile to her community. Mm. Uh, Jessica, what did you think? Um, I really, I was uh, similarly um, uh, probably a little bit wary going into this um, for exactly the same reasons that Sandra's just mentioned. Um, and then similarly really surprised. And I think a lot of that came from the lead performance, uh, which I thought was really electrifying. Um, but also, I think... What was unusual about this for me in a, in a, in a fairly well-traveled genre of films, mm. if we can call it that, was that um, I've rarely seen uh, sort of almost equal weight given to the human drama story, but then also to the story of the city. Uh, Desan touched it already, but this, this, um, the, the story of the gentrification of New, of New York and specifically of Harlem through uh, the, the mid-90s um, uh, to like the mid 2000s, I think, or late 2000s, um, is it, it's just so brilliantly achieved for one thing. The period detailing, um, and that was the very first time I remember I, I ever came to New York was around that the period where this film begins. Um, and I actually stayed in Harlem and just like even even seeing the seeing the the, the way it's shot and the the costuming and everything. And they, I think she also made the conscious decision to change um, uh, the camera work. So the camera work of the earlier parts is much more vibrant. It's very gritty and it's very like a lot of it on the streets very handheld there's a lot of close-ups and again this character the Tayona Taylor character she she is uh she's abrasive I mean almost all the time what she's actually doing is an incredible act of care an incredible act of like big big picture tenderness but her tenderness manifests itself in a very abrasive manner she's a very tough love mm. kind of mother um and uh but like relating that and relating her the encroachment 
encroachment of the world on this because essentially it begins where she she kidnaps the 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 boy from foster care mm. and you get the impression that she herself probably went through the foster system and that's one of the reasons that she's so anxious to take him out of it she herself has we we see at the very beginning she's actually in Rikers um uh, serving a sentence so this is just immediately after she's left and she goes and she she kidnaps the boy from mm. from the hospital where he has been uh, put in after um falling out of a window because he was trying to get away from his foster family anyway so their their relationship is already is prickly at the beginning but there then it becomes this sort of unbreakable bond and it's almost more unbreakable because of the illegality of it so she has to do certain things she has to pay for to get him uh, false papers she changes his name so that he can enroll in school so they are all always not just um you know marginalized through poverty and through the her ex-convict status that they're also marginalized literally because what she has done is illegal and she has basically kidnapped a ward of state so but so the the fact that that this film is so adept to me at relating that small story to the story the greater story of New York City and of the encroachment of the system if you would like to call it that um of gentrification coming into coming into Harlem like actually ending up right in her apartment where her apartment roof falls in um you know i think that's that parallel was really powerful for me for for me there's a a line that her best friend says in it where she says something like um yeah oh yeah be be from harlem but don't be of harlem she's trying to give her this advice to say like basically get out it's good to be proud of your roots but get out of here um and to me by the end of it it's not it's neither of those things she basically is harlem and i think that's a really interesting um thing to have to have portrayed especially in the person of a black woman well i i looks like i have to check out uh, 1001 because you know i was a lot of what you guys were saying kind of reminded me of the things i liked about earth mama which we've mm-hmm. like talked about a bunch on the pod and i i love that movie uh but this sense of um you know first of all that it's a story of a person and also of a city and also of a system and also exploring ideas of motherhood especially how this intervention of the state and poverty and all of those things can really shape that experience but also it seems like it the movie doesn't present the protagonist as a noble person necessarily for you to empathize or sympathize like it's not like she does no wrong which is what was so great about earth mama too like it's not like this is a pure person who like you know life has crushed her but you still life has crushed her but you know that doesn't mean that she has to be uh completely blameless in every way that the state asks her to be blameless in order for her to like deserve all the basic things that humans should have and i'm i'm like getting that sort yeah, of subtext from this film yeah i think her 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 life her lot has been very hard and it has made the way that she expresses even something as tender as love also very hard right. but it is actually love that she's expressing and this incredible what we finally come to understand was actually a, a, an incredible two decade long act of self sacrifice mm. that she did on somebody else's behalf so yes on the moment to moment basis she can be unlikable she can be very unreasonable and she can be very abrasive but actually she's probably better than any of us well um on a very different note i was like is there a segue i can make to make to shortcomings here i'm not going to try because that i'm probably going to end up making a fool of myself but uh i did want to talk about shortcomings which is uh and one of the reasons i wanted to talk about it is because before we recorded the previous pod jessica sort of told me some things about it that were so 
interesting, so fascinating. Like it opens with a scene about cra- the crazy rich Asians. Yeah. You know, and then I read Palomi's review and that's what you start your review with too. And so I really wanted to talk about it and it's Randall Park's directorial debut. It's yeah. adapted from a graphic novel, novel by Adrian Tomine, uh, which I know you've read, Palomi. Yeah. So maybe you can start off by telling us what the movie is about. Um, the movie is basically about like a millennial slacker comedy, but from the perspective of, say, three Asian American leads, like we are witnessing the disintegration of a relationship, but like from the perspective of the main lead. And I think similar to um, Passages, I feel like the character here also has a kind of a main character energy in the sense that he's really in denial of the fact that he's not the center of everyone's universe and that he can be a very self-absorbed person where he kind of hides his own inadequacy in a way where he thinks like putting people down might kind of hide that. So he has this very like strong opinions about the world, about films. He thinks uh, things should be done one way. He's the kind of person who thinks, you know, if you want to make a film, you should make a perfect film or you should not make a film at all. He's that kind of a person. That's the kind of reasoning he tells himself to hate on everything. And that's that's kind of like the unpleasantness that he comes with that I think the people in his life kind of get a little like um, unaccustomed with and can't like take it anymore. So like what we're witnessing is this guy kind of figuring out that he may not be the guy he thought he was in his head. And in that process, what I liked about the film is that it really did kind of like take on very like nice, not nice, but like complex things of like race and sex and dating, but also kind of um, go back on that word in a very like comic way, because it was also like highlighting the fact that it like the beginning scene, which I'm pretty sure we'll talk in detail. Yeah. But critiques, why don't you go ahead and describe it anyway? Because uh, I teased it so much. <laughs> um, when the scene, when the film begins, it begins with a scene where we basically watch this kind of glossy, big budget um, Asian American um, film. Uh, the closing, the closing sequences of this film, where the audience is basically uh, applauding, and like everyone's a, like, like people are watching the scene yeah, in a movie in, theater at a movie festival, yeah. and everyone's applauding. And you can see that it's kind of a parody of crazy rich Asians because A, it has one cast member from the film ah, and it has okay. Stephanie uh, as as like the female lead and everyone around everyone around is like really into the movie and they're talking about how like you know game changing this is how this might open so many like doors for other Asian American mm-hmm. stories and Ben the lead character here is the guy who's appalled by everyone like taking to it because he's like how can you all think this is the pinnacle of representation for us when this is like limiting the scope of what it could mean to tell Asian American stories. Mm. So like he's the cynical one who is just like taking a kind of a moral superiority in the sense seeing that, you know, okay, sure, representation is necessary, but the politics of representation could also like limit authenticity. And I think more than like being mad at the movie, I feel like his character is more mad at the audience because he's like, how can you think that this is good? Yeah. And that's like, the. but here's my question. He sounds right. So well, this is the thing. No, this is what makes him an asshole. And it's yeah. specifically what, what Palomi's just talking about is that um, be absolutely correct. He, he can be absolutely correct about yeah. his assessment of that film and its extremely limited value in terms of representation. Um, but where where we understand, and this is in a conversation that he has with his girlfriend, Mika, outside, who is a Japanese-American um, like he is. Okay. Um, so he's having this conversation. She works for the film festival, so she's already a little bit pro the film. Um, I, you don't get the impression that she thinks it's like a masterpiece or anything, yeah. but she's arguing a lot of those things about the halo effect, that, that you know, 
know, other Asian American like better films will yeah. get made and on the back of this thing. Have to as be like, the perfect film. Yes, but and so he, and he is he first is refuting that, but then you do also get the feeling that actually most of his score and most of his disdain is reserved for the other members of the yeah. audience, and that becomes the sort of the the overriding arc. That is that this movie is going to go through, where we're going to sort of follow him. Not it's not not so much about him coming to really a, a new understanding about art or anything. It's just coming to an understanding. Like let there is the whole let people enjoy things yeah. thing, yeah. Um, yeah. and it's like it's fine if it's not for you, but like don't but like just don't automatically assume that everybody's a moron because they like something that you didn't. Mm. Um, so and that's, that's where yeah. the movie ends up. I mean, that's kind of the movie's. Uh, that's yeah. That's where the movie ends up. I mean, I'm I think. I'm a little bit less positive on it um, actually because a lot of these things to me the, these uh, slight paradoxes are never really worked out I mean there's, there's I, I should say I mean I did enjoy the film it's very funny um, I find there's something slightly disingenuous about the way the film is made about the way the film is presented because it is presented to me it looks very much like a, a very glossy yeah. Netflixy kind of comedy. Yeah. It looks a bit like Always Be My Maybe, yeah. which was Randall Park's thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's something slightly... Um, slightly insincere or slightly actually it's more that it's defensive it's yeah. almost I almost feel like Randall Park is kind of excusing himself in advance for his film's lack of greater artistic ambition because he's sort of saying well you know this is the sort of the, the journey that I probably went on right. well, I wanted to make a masterpiece but when you want to make a masterpiece you often can't get out of your own way so I just thought you know what I'll just make a film that everybody will love <laughs> and he has made a film that everybody will oh, love no. it's a very lovable you know film what, you know what this reminds me of this reminds me of that line from the movie where Alice is like just because I'm a hypocrite, hypocrite doesn't, doesn't mean, mean I'm wrong, wrong. Exactly. Like, which, is, no, which is the best line in the movie exactly describes also what Alice saying. we should say as well Sherry Cola playing Alice yeah. is the best character in it's the movie really she's the a total best. scene stealer and she's very funny um, uh -huh. but she has that 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 wonderful line, yeah. and it was one I quoted in my review because to me it really does sum up a, a lot of, yeah. of what of, a lot of what my problems were with it, but also a lot of what what, yeah. what is actually kind of clever and sort of meta and like self-referential about yeah. it. To me, some of that self-reference comes across slightly defensively in a way that I, I wish it didn't. Yeah. That's so, always, yeah. a, I mean, that's always the problems with films about filmmakers and filmmaking. So often they become excuses for oneself. Um, but follow me, I'm curious because Crazy Rich Asians is a relatively recent reference and the book is yeah. older. Yeah. So how, I mean, what what is the differences and, uh, you know, I how mean, much of the original story is preserved? The opening scene is something that has been adapted for the screen. It's not in the book at all. And mm -hmm. also like they've modernized a lot of the references that we hear in the film because a large part of the film also has three of them like talking about film references like there's Bong Joon-ho, Celine Siama name dropped every 10 minutes or 15 minutes mm -hmm. and like he watches movies by Ozu so you know there are lots of references there's talk of Spider-Man, Marvel yeah. so these things are not in the movie they are uh, all updated not in like, the book you mean? not in the book sorry so when was the book the book written? came out in 2009 Okay, and but it is also about a filmmaker, so there are different film yeah, references. Yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, and um, and I mean, did you feel that it was successful as an adaptation? Because it's a beloved book, actually. I mean, it's a very acclaimed and loved uh, graphic yeah. novel. Yeah, yeah. I think what what I liked about the way they adapted it is that they didn't uh, didn't become too like conscious about the fact that they were adapting this graphic novel, which means so much. I feel like more than anything, it just felt like they were trying to like take something that they knew everyone or people who knew about the novel had like some kind of connection to it and they decided to see like how could this be made 
as a movie that's also like kind of doing justice to it but is also like very removed from it i don't know how to articulate it better but that's what i kind of took from it because it seemed to me you know like what they really wanted to do is make the most irrelevant like irrelevant movie which has which which sounds was like that a freudian slip yeah i was sorry <laughs> but just this idea of like you know nothing quite happens in the plot beyond what is happening to the characters and that's where like you do the circles with like it reminded me a lot of non fiction in a way because the conversations like the olivia sayas yeah yeah the conversations that all, the three of the people would be happening or characters uh, in the periphery would be having are just conversations that seem very mundane to everyone else but like you know to us to people who are so concerned with film or to people who like mm. think of art as you know like has such a bearing on our lives these conversations take such a weighted me- meaning that it becomes like a part of our lives so i found that Yeah. That very fascinating. I, I think also, but we shouldn't overstate how much this movie is about movies. Yeah. <laughs> because actually, the movie is a, it's a relationship comedy. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, really, and actually, the the main source of drama and angst, certainly for the main character, for Ben, is that he and it's another aspect of his hypocrisy, um, is that while he is very alert to representational issues, for example, in something like Crazy Rich Asians, he himself. It's well known amongst his friends. Yeah, they all talk about it. How even though he has his Japanese American girlfriend, he his his wandering eye will always settle on the white blonde Anglo yeah. blue eyed girl. <laughs> yeah, and he's um, in denial about he's it. He's completely in denial about it. Um, or and you know and he, at one point Mika his his girlfriend catches him watching porn and gets hung, very hung up on the fact that all of the porn features nothing oh but blonde white women. Um, and in, in these conversations that they have with each other. Um, and these escalating conversations, which do feel very written, but they are quite funny, so I yeah. don't really mind that that they feel very constructed. Um, and it's oftentimes very obvious that they're working like we're, this is the the issue that we're working out uh-huh. in this particular um, debate. Uh, but um, so so the, you know, all of those things happen. There's another. There's a a young. He, so he works in a failing art house movie theater. <laughs> Um, wait, they say that he's a filmmaker, but I'm not. It's not entirely clear if he's ever manager. made a film. He studied. Yeah, yeah. he sounds <laughs> like one a film. Yeah. He's made one film and listed all his friends, and he yeah. th- it was a disaster. Yes, so he obviously disaster, never exactly. made one again. Yeah. So, but he considers Hicked himself a filmmaker. Picked right from you know the New York film he, world, um, <laughs> and he also like his. There's a, a, quite a funny just aside at one point where he's where uh, he he's on he's the phone or something. Run. No, oh. and he's and he's saying, um, oh yeah, no, I'm I'm just I'm watching my comfort my comfort movie, and his comfort movie is an Uh, Yasujiro Ozu film, yeah, yeah. Um, and you also see him watching oh, Truffaut. God. You see him watching Casavetes. Um, again, there's there's a part of me that wishes that wasn't there. I wish he wasn't a filmmaker or something, yeah, because it's too easy now that for us to suddenly like um, uh, relate that thrust of it to this current skein of like anti-intellectualism uh, that we yeah, have, yeah, yeah. and that this sort of the equation of his love for Casavetes, Ozu, or and who Truffaut or whatever it is, with his sort of um, with his inertia, um, and you know, with sort of just being too snobby to move, basically yeah, yeah, yeah. being too elitist yeah. to be able to actually function. So, so I wish that kind of wasn't there. But anyway, so the main thing is um, this this uh, racial element that that um, exists in in who he desires versus who he's going out with. Um, she she eventually decamps to New York, New York. City um, because she's uh, got an internship there, or so she says. Um, and so he is suddenly left by himself. Um, and the very first thing he does is call the pretty blonde um, oh uh, um, employee, employee at the movie theater, who is actually, and I do think I do really like, and this is just obviously because I'm not white myself. I do really like 
the way that the white characters are just all ridiculous in this. <laughs> I mean, ridiculous human beings. There's one, there's one, one of one of the girls he eventually goes out with is actually she's 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 portrayed as an actual human being and she's she comes out of it quite well but this one the one who works in the in the movie theater it's very very funny she's she's a singer or shrieker yeah a shrieker with a terrible punk uh, experimental punk band and i know it's like an artist yes the artist the one joke i will give away is that she he goes back to her apartment one point and she has an entire wall of her apartment covered in photographs of her toilet bowls contents in every morning every morning and it's this project that she's working on so i mean yeah like mm. sort of lampooning things but like that but what i also really liked about that scene is that you know the movie has built up ben as this person who has you know such a superiority complex where you know when he sees something like this he will actually call it out yeah. but in this case he doesn't, he doesn't because he will also do anything to get laid yeah. which i think is also get laid by a nice white yeah, lady yeah by a nice yeah. white lady right like yeah. because even before this he goes to a performance her performance and we see the reaction on his face how yeah. appalled he is but he like plays along mm. only because he thinks like you know this is how he can maybe clean I'm some social equity or I don't know. Let people enjoy things. <laughs> no. <laughs> um okay, well that was shortcomings and again how do I segue from shortcomings to Milisutanto? The same. I just have to go right into it. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, right no, there's it. another way. Yeah. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. So the film is Milito Sando and Desan do you want to tell us what it's about I know you've been familiar with this film for a while Sure so it is this deeply personal and and really poetic documentary that is focused on uh Milito Sando Bonjela who is the director and the writer of the film and it's really focused on her reflections on her upbringing in a region of South Africa called the Transkei and the transkei is a super unique place or rather was in that it was this region that i've heard some people talk about as a place where apartheid never existed that is of course deeply false and problematic for many reasons but the reason that people say that is that it was sort of this it was this region where black people lived in a segregated manner from the tiny white ruling minority um and therefore had access to a sort of quasi independence and didn't grow up under the same shadow of daily violence and racialized oppression that black people living elsewhere in the country did. And so what the filmmaker is doing is really creating this deeply layered um, reflection of her upbringing and what it means to sort of have had an upbringing that was sheltered in some ways and sort of protected from some of the most um I guess sort of most obvious evils of apartheid in terms of how they would feel viscerally but also what it means to also reckon with the fact that the transkei became a project of the apartheid government that was then used to prop it up on the world stage so it brings up a lot and I think I have a deep appreciation for the film I spent a year living and working in South Africa after mm. I graduated college on a Fulbright which is deeply complicated for its own <laughs> political issues um and I actually remember first learning about the trans guy when I was there and it was from 
a person who had grown up there and they said oh. that exact same thing to me. They said, I grew up in the trans guy. We didn't have apartheid. And at the huh. time I remember being like, mm, that doesn't sound right. I don't know. Um, and so watching this film was deeply affecting for me, but also troubling at parts of it, which we'll mm. get into. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't know, uh, about the trans guy before watching this film, which probably reflects sort of poorly <laughs> on me, but I, you know, I I just think it's it's a very kind of interesting chapter in the history of uh, South Africa's kind of journey to the end of apartheid, um, and I I just thought this premise was so arresting and rich, you know, uh, this artist Milusa uh, Tando examining what it meant to have a childhood, to have her formative years in that environment where blackness is not, she's not experiencing blackness in relation to whiteness, right, uh, as a child. And that's what people living in sort of mixed South Africa uh, or segregated uh, South Africa, but where they still had exposure um, to the white ruling minority had, or people all over the world um, who've lived in sort of racist societies have had. And so it's this interesting exploration of that experience, which often can seem a little bit impossible, uh, which is to, you know, be able to think of one's race in the absence of whiteness or one's race as not defined, you know, dialectically against whiteness. And then the second part of the film moves to when, you know, she eventually her once apartheid ended in the 1990s, uh, her family moved to East London and she went to a mixed school for the first time. And the second part of the film sort of then delves into that experience, that kind of later experience of confronting racism and confronting whiteness and suddenly like understanding that there were these power relations that structured both whiteness and blackness and how that changed her self-perception and I think that's very very complicated and rich territory it's also stuff that this film actually I should say describes with great beauty I mean this is one of the most uh striking transfixing documentaries I've seen at the festival uh it combines a lot of archival footage a lot of it uh, drawn from newsreels uh along with home video of um Milusa Tando's own family when she visits her ancestral home uh, the voiceover has uh, really poetic reflections from her about her upbringing. And she is a poet. So it, you know, it's nothing feels didactic. It's all very oblique and poetic descriptions of rituals, descriptions of songs, community rituals that she experienced as a child. Uh, there's even, you know, she asks her uh, asks her aunts and mothers to sing uh, old Transkai songs. And so there is this very beautiful, immersive um, and poetic exploration rather than it being, you know, an expository, direct, uh, some kind of examination. It's all very, it's almost like she's diving into her subconscious. And I should say that like, um, Dasan, I think we've, we talked about this at one point that how, uh, she interviews her grandmother, um, and she's telling her grandmother about how a, a, a relative has a girlfriend who is, I think the term they use is colored. And you told me, you know, that that's, uh, that's kind of a specific term that we don't use in the same way that 
uh, not used in the same way in America. So that in there it refers to people who are not black or white, uh, as I understand it. Um, and so she said that, oh, the girlfriend's probably Indian or... And the grandmother goes off on what is, you know, essentially a kind of really um, racist uh, and a fearful rant about, oh, why is he doing this? Like, why is he being allowed to do this? Why is he mixing blood? This is how our race is going to end. Why couldn't he find uh, a black partner? You know, this is this is what Mandela wanted. And it's very illuminating of the kind of effects that apartheid had you know, on the generation that grew up with it, and even the people who supposedly, you know, built out their own independence out of it, how deeply it has, you know, seeped into their mentality as well. Absolutely. And I think part of what you're saying is that I think it really demonstrates the ways in which apartheid was a disease that really affected the entire society. And I mean that in the sense of, it was something that really seeped into every aspect of day-to-day -day life. And I think for me, as someone who lived there briefly um, at a time where I had both colleagues who were part of the quote, born free generation and ones who were older and grew up very much under the shadow and daily thumb of oppression of apartheid, it was really fascinating to watch this film. And I think that that moment that you're pointing to with her grandmother really speaks to the ways in which this experiment in segregation breeds its own form of hatred, where colored people, are, I won't go into explaining colored identity other than saying that we, we have no parallel for that in the States. Um, and it's really a term that is specific. It doesn't have the same history as colored um, in the US, which was more used as like a catch-all for anyone who wasn't white. Colored identity in South Africa is very specific. Like that is an, an ethnic cultural group. Um, and there, there has historically been tensions between some colored communities and some communities. So watching that scene, I was very much reminded of, you know, the strategies of white supremacy, which are to make us fight among ourselves and thus distract us from the larger problem of their domination and their oppression. And so I think that's something that the film does very well, not only through scenes like that, but through a broader attention on elder black women and really looking at them and talking with them as these sort of keepers of collective history. And I think really the strength of the film beyond that is also just in the specificity of its story. Like this is a very unique and particular experience of apartheid and what I appreciate about the director's approach is that she doesn't try to give us a primer in apartheid history. She very much focused on the specificity of this region and of her upbringing in it. And she uses this really stunning archival footage that is also just completely mind boggling. Like I know you touched on this, but I think what strikes me about the archival is that it's, it's often government archival footage. And there is a clip in it where an apartheid official is talking about indigenous African cultures as this quote flower worth protecting. And so it really speaks to this duplicitous um, paternalism that was really employed by the apartheid government on a world stage of saying like, oh, you may think that we are oppressing these people, but really we're trying to protect them in a way that is just so malicious and deeply harmful. 
And I think the film teases out those complexities in a really fascinating way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is the specificity of much of the film and its historical, this kind of historical richness um, that makes uh, some of the second half uh, a little yeah. bit disappointing. Um, you know, halfway through the film, it kind of switches to a very different mode um, where um, there's two conversations that Melissa Tando has with uh, white friends. So one of them is actually with the producer of the film, Marion. And the next, uh, the second one is with a friend named Bettina. Both conversations um, takes uh, take place just uh, almost only in voiceover. So the screen is black. Uh, they go on for a long time. And both are very charged and emotional and kind of exploring what it means to be friends across this kind of racial divide when there is so much baggage and history in that racial divide. So what does it mean for a black South African and a white South African to be friends? Um, and the first conversation, for example, is really triggered by what, you know, what one might call a microaggression, a, a something that Marion says that uh, Millie kind of responds to in an unexpected way. And then they unpack what that means and and the ways in which you know, they enact, or especially this is something Marion says, that she wants to know the ways in which she's enacting historical dynamics of racism. But there's also this very, you know, she also says, but I don't want to be held responsible for my white ancestors. I don't want you to look at me and see my white ancestors. And so there's this real kind of grappling with individual like the responsibilities that come with a friendship where you really are responsible to each other and you you owe this generosity to each other and then the responsibilities that just come you know with being co-citizens of the world and these political responsibilities where you often are responsible for more than what you just represent as a friend because you are shaped and many times are benefiting from you know generations um, of accumulated privilege so on paper, actually, these are very interesting, complicated, tricky conversations. On screen, they just go on for too long. And they suddenly shift the focus of the film from blackness to whiteness in a way that I found disappointing because I feel like what was interesting about the first half was that it was really exploring the psychological effects of apartheid, but within a structural historical context. I mean, what is the relationship between that historical context and the experience and the upbringing of uh, Millie and, you know, other children in the trans sky? Uh, and that's where the mix of archival footage and personal testimony plays out so beautifully. Here, it seems to really then drill down on racism as a personal problem, as a personal internal problem, which is a an issue I have with a lot of contemporary like DEI speak, you know, this idea that racism is something just within yourself and you can talk it out and you can exorcise it, whereas it is a material reality. And the fact that Marion... You know, I think Dasan, you you were the one you who brought this up when we were talking about this film. Like Marion is her producer, so why are they not also talking? You know, about how this affects their material economic relationship, their artistic relationship, um, and I think sometimes this kind of indulgent personal uh conversation about racism can really detract from the material uh, realities. And South Africa is still actually 
you know, it's not just the baggage that continues in the way white people and black people interact with each other. There are huge issues in South Africa in terms of, you know, uh, land ownership, in terms of economic inequality, other kinds of, you know, power differentials. So that I found a little bit disappointing. Absolutely. I mean, I would echo parts of that in saying that I think there's this energy in the first half of the film that is really focused on the specificity of this filmmaker's journey, but with it's sort of held in a way that has a keen awareness and a keen eye on this larger systemic, um, really sort of orchestration of hatred and oppression on a broader level. I think it does a really strong job of balancing the personal as political with an awareness and a sort of um, an address of the larger systemic issues. And I think it falters, as you're saying, when we get to the second half, um, the film is really divided into these poetic chapters that are kind of anchored by indigenous African spirituality and these archival clips and, and really discussions of memory and how important that memory is, particularly in the wake of a national traumatic experience like living through apartheid. And then so we we have that energy and that sort of complication or the sort of complicatedness of that. We also have the filmmakers really poignant reflections on what it means to sort of wrestle with that duality. Like at one point she says, she's sort of wrestling with what it means for her to be grateful for growing up with what she describes as like a sense of rootedness, a quote sense of nothing is wrong with me-ness, which really stuck with me. Um, and then what it meant to go to these white, um, they call them Model C school schools. Those were schools that used to be formerly whites only during the apartheid era. Um, and just what it was like to have that experience. That discussion is filtered through other Black folks who are talking about their experience of when they first entered. And those scenes are filled with like some dark humor and also some really razor sharp critiques of the failed promises of the quote rainbow democracy, including of Mandela, um, which I think I increasingly see a lot of younger folks in South Africa be unafraid to critique him in a way that of, of folks who are of a different generation. So I think all of that is to say that this shift to these kind of almost confessional style conversations with white people feel very jarring. And I think in the case of, of Marion, this is her producer, Marion Isaacs, um, it's clear that these are two people who share a deep and intimate bond. They've been friends for a long time. And it sounds like these are conversations that are important for them to have. I just don't know that as audience members that we need to bear witness to them. I think that the way in which they are carried out uh, starts from this place of earnestness and then quickly spirals into something that feels very performative. Like there's one moment where Marianne sort of admits that she cannot quote, erase the wounds of history, which I don't think is a, a thing you would just say in conversation with a friend if, if it is it's very beautiful and poetic but I, I have a sneaking suspicion it is not um, and so it sort of invites us into this space that feels very much written for our consumption in a way that feels almost sort of trauma porny yeah I mean and also I mean there had to have been a decision made to turn on the recorder right so there's always yeah 
Yeah, um, it, it feels very much like this is something that is orchestrated to invite an audience into the complications of post-apartheid era, which again, discussion of those complications is completely valid and frankly, I think very necessary. I just think that given the rhythm of the film and its focus and really its strengths, which is focusing on Black femme experiences during apartheid, um, it feels like this deviation that just sort of kind of shocks the system and jolts you out of the really special space that it otherwise invites you into. And then after that scene with Marianne, um, which as you mentioned, like the screen cuts to black and you're really in the caption. So it's sort of, you're kind of flailing in the dark with these two individuals in a way that I understand the conceptual framework behind that, but I'm not sure how well it works in practice. And then we cut to Bettina, who is another friend of um, Millie. And that is the one that feels like also very jarring in its way, because while on the one hand, the discussion with Marion, I think what isn't acknowledged is really the dynamics of power. Marion is a producer on this project. She's having this conversation with the director who is also her friend. It seems like they may come from different class backgrounds. And then of course the issue of race is massive in South Africa. And I think where that conversation didn't name a discussion of power in a way that I was sort of waiting for it to, I think that comes up a bit more obviously when it comes to Bettina as she's sort of confessing about her memories of the way that power played out in a very lopsided and disjointed way in her own family in terms of hired help that they had around the house who were of course black um, and the way that that power imbalance determined everything from what cuts of meat um, folks who worked in the house were given versus what were given to the people who lived in the house and it's just it's sort of this thing where it's like again I want you to have this conversation I want you to have these opportunities for self-reflection. Personally, I don't know that I'm as interested in <laughs> seeing yeah. play out on screen. I don't they need to listen to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's I sort think... of, there's this rhythm of the edit that just gets kind of like disjointed towards yeah. that part of the film. Like it becomes, it starts to feel very bloated and it's, it's a longer documentary. It's like a little over two hours. Yeah, it's almost, so it, well, it's, yeah, it's almost two hours. Um, or almost two hours. Yeah. I mean, um, I will say, though, that the problems I had with this film were so interesting to me <laughs> than the problems I, you know, have had with a lot of other uh, films or documentaries at Sundance. Um, and I do appreciate it for that. You know, I think the just this discussion we've had about our reservations about the film um, feels so much meatier than just saying, like, you know, that something uh, wasn't well made enough or completely misjudged and um i do feel that you know this is a um this is Mili Mili sutando's first feature and there's definitely a first feature vibe to it you know there's kind of the film tries to do everything all at once um <laughs> and you know it's like you know some of this could be a you know a different film all of this doesn't need to be in these 2 hours um so there is a little bit of that vibe but it is really so audacious and daring, and I think both of us came away um, really intrigued by it. And I'm I'm excited to see what Mirisatandu um, does next. And I do want people to see the film and kind of engage in you know conversation around it. 
Absolutely. I think more than anything, it makes me very curious to learn about this director's broader practice. Yeah. As you mentioned, she is a poet, she's a writer, and I'm curious to see these sentiments and these explorations channeled into other forms, both within film and and in other uh, disciplines. Well, I think on that note, we should wrap up uh, this discussion. Uh, Always good to end on a positive note. So I always, you know, jump in when someone says something nice. So uh, uh, thank you so much, all of you, for joining me today. Thank you for helping me wrap my uh, Sundance daily podcast coverage. I mean, there is one more podcast coming, dear listeners. But this is the end of my series of discussions straight from Park City. Um, And I'll see you all around again uh, at the festival and at other festivals and in life. Bye. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.